Legal marketing is one of the most competitive landscapes in the marketing business. Big names can throw tens of thousands of dollars into ads to move the needle, but money alone isn't enough. GNGF literally wrote the book on online law practice strategies, and we're giving it to listeners of this podcast absolutely free. To claim your free digital copy of the best-selling book now, visit 4.gngf.com brief. GNGF, or Get Notice, Get Found, is a full-service marketing agency working exclusively with law firms for the past decade. And the fifth edition of this book is packed with strategies you can put in place today. So get your free copy at 4.gngf.com brief. That's number 4.gngf.com brief. And Get Noticed, Get Found. Welcome to Brief Encounters. I'm Michelle Berkovich, and I'm here with Hai Feldblum to talk about Supreme Court's decision in Bostock um, and kind of the state of the law on sexual orientation, transgender status, and even Title VII in light of that decision. I'm a partner at Alden Law Group. Most of my practice is with federal sector employment and labor law, so everything from employment discrimination to whistleblowing. I have a special interest in um, sexual orientation in the law disability and sexual harassment. So I am very excited to have Hai Feldblum here with me. Um, she is currently a partner at Morgan Lewis, where she's a director of workplace culture consulting, um, where she works with companies and organizations. Uh, before that, she served as commissioner of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, from 2010 to 2019. Uh, while well, at the EEOC, Hai co-led a task force in the study of harassment in the workplace. She also participated a lot in a federal sector strategic plan, which I will get to a little, in a little bit. And before that, I was a professor at Georgetown Law for 18 years. Um, while she was there, she founded the law school's federal legislation clinic um, and workplace flexibility 2010. And in addition, she played a leading role in drafting and negotiating um, the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990 and the ADA Amendments Act of 2008 and is a national authority on disability rights. Uh, Hyde's also a prominent figure in the LGBTQ community and has played leading roles in drafting legislation and advancing really the state of the law in the area of the LGBTQ rights. She also clerked for Justice Harry Blackman on the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, which I find particularly cool. Uh, welcome, Hyde. Thank you. It's lovely to be here with you, Michelle. Lovely to be here with you as well. And I don't know how many of our listeners are familiar with the federal sector EEOC process, but I wanted to speak about that for a second. So in addition to the litigation and investigation aspect in the private sector, the EEOC has this whole federal sector component. Um, there, there's thousands of cases involving federal sector employees that come out of EEOC's what's called Office of Federal Operations. And the commissioners on important cases, they will directly vote and assist in the crafting of opinions and legal analysis on significant legal issues. You can tell if a decision is one of these, um, as I noted, by seeing who signed a decision. If a decision is signed by the executive secretariat rather than the director of OFO, then that's something from the commission. And why is this important to Bostock? So all the legal theory and analysis in Bostock, that's, that's 2020. The argument central to Bostock that sexual orientation, discrimination based on sexual orientation, discrimination based on sex, really had its germs at the EOC's Office of Federal Operations under Chai. So in 2012, Chai um, and the EOC commissioners issued a decision Macy versus Department of Justice, 
that found sex discrimination was discrimination based on transgender status. And then in 2015, Baldwin v. Department of Transportation. This was a huge decision in the federal sector. I encourage everyone to look it up because the analysis you will see in Baldwin um, is what you will ultimately see playing out in large part in Bostock. The finding sexual orientation is inherently sex-based and an allegation of discrimination based on sexual orientation is necessarily an allegation of sex discrimination under Title VII. And the reason why I want to talk about Bostock is a lot of that comes from her brain. That's new legal analysis. Prior to all this, we practitioners were trying to get to sexual orientation by saying it was sex stereotyping, and it didn't always work. There were attempts to try and enact legislation saying that sex orientation, adding it to Title VII. But then I came along in 2015 and then through 2020, there's this decision in Bostock v. Clayton County. So hi. Well, I obviously think the federal sector is about the center of the universe. It's often not something that well known. Can you give us a sense of how federal sector decisions play a role in the EEOC's kind of wider approach to matters? Sure. And welcome, everyone, to the podcast again. And it's so great to be talking with you, Michelle, especially talking to a federal sector um, practitioner. I love it. So when I came to the EOC, I didn't even realize that the EOC had jurisdiction to issue opinions when federal employees or applicants for federal jobs felt that they had been discriminated against on a basis covered under Title VII. And we know that the EOC speaks through regulations and guidance. It speaks through amicus briefs. It speaks through the litigation it brings. But it also speaks through its federal sector opinions. And again, as I had said, you can see when something has actually gone to the commission for a vote, otherwise we've delegated our authority. But even delegated authority cases are the EOC's position. So after the EOC, as you noted, ruled in 2012 that gender identity discrimination is a form of sex discrimination, that then became the rule across the EOC, taking into account private sector charges. Same thing, they actually at the Office of Federal Operations had issued two cases, one in 2011, one in 2012, that I was called Veretto and Costello, that used that gender stereotyping theory. You know, it's a, the gender stereotype that w- women should be attracted to men and men should be attracted to women. And that actually allowed us to tell our investigators starting in 2012 that they could take in sexual orientation charges, but we didn't have a full-blown legal analysis. And that we didn't get to until 2015 in Baldwin. And um, I am, I think because I'm a statutory interpretation law professor, <laughs> I was very committed on starting with the plain language textualist um, argument, even though that hadn't been the norm in the courts. And that's part of why you see that as the first of the three theories in Baldwin. Yeah, and I think I think that theory was what really... Um, It's why we have Bostock, because of the fact that you were able to say you don't even have to look beyond the text of Title VII. Everybody, you've been doing it wrong. You've been doing it wrong. What's interesting about Bostock and what's interesting about Baldwin is I'm going to use the word dumbing down, which is a terrible word. But it really is if we strip away all of our belabored analysis um, and workarounds and go back to the basics 
that's where we find that sexual orientation uh, is covered under Title VII as is, which is, I was was so pleased to see the decision rested, the Supreme Court's decision rested on that. Uh, But I'd actually like to kind of turn to Bostock, Mm -hmm. um, and then we can talk a little bit about these legal theories that you started off involved with and see where the court has gone with them. So um, June 15th, 2020, um, Bostock v. Clayton County comes out. Uh, Justice Horsich wrote a 6-3 opinion, and they agreed Title VII's prohibition on sex discrimination prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, period. <laughs> End of story. Very briefly, I, I'm not going to get into the specific details of all three plaintiffs, but it involved three cases where longtime employees, Gerald Bostock, Daniel Zarda, and Amy Stevens were fired for being gay or, in uh, Ms. Stevens' case, transgender. By the time it got to appeal to SCOTUS, uh, the cases were very, I'll use the word again, dumbed down. It was pretty much almost, which was great, the sole issue on appeal was whether sexual orientation or gender identity was a prohibited basis for making a decision. The employers did not challenge that that was a reason why they took the actions against these employees. So it left up to the Supreme Court to decide whether, um, like the 11th Circuit had found, an employer can rely on someone's sexual orientation to fire them, or whether Title VII prohibits that. So, hi, why don't you start by telling us why Bostock is so important? Well, Bostock is important because it simply changes the legal landscape for LGBTQ people to feel guaranteed against discrimination, certainly in employment, but I think as we've seen and is legally correct across the board, any place where there's a prohibition against sex discrimination. So you're not, you're not living in a checkerboard United States, where if you're lucky to live in a state that explicitly had added sexual orientation or gender identity to a non-discrimination statute, there you're guaranteed protection if you've been discriminated on those bases, as opposed to in other states, once we had, once the EOC had issued its opinions in 2012 and 2015, you could come to the EOC, file a charge, try to get resolution, but ultimately it was going to be up to the courts. So in one fell swoop, the Bostock decision established that Title VII sex discrimination law that had been in place for all these years was finally being interpreted correctly to include sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. And then because the same legal analysis should apply to other sex discrimination laws, you get the protection there. And as you noted, there had been legislation introduced on the federal level for years. I mean, that was one of the things I did in 1993 was help draft the first version of the Employment Non-Discrimination Act with the whole civil rights uh, community. And that was often used by courts to say that's a reason why it's not already in Title VII. But we just didn't think there was any way to do it within the current case law. But the fact is people had been writing in the academy for some time that sex discrimination should include sexual orientation. Um, I had written a piece in 2002 (laughs) saying that it just didn't have traction in the courts. So As you noted, the reason this even got to the Supreme Court is that after years of like one appellate court after another saying sexual orientation and discrimination is not a form of sex discrimination, we finally, post Baldwin, 
had district court opinion saying, well, actually, I think that's right, you know, and then it went up to the appellate courts and two of them reversed their precedent, which is what they had to do. And then we had a circuit split. So it could go up to the court um, on sexual orientation. On gender identity, we actually didn't have a circuit split. Lots of circuits had held that discrimination based on gender identity is a form of gender stereotyping, that there wasn't the blanket logical next step oh, well, every form of discrimination based on gender identity is inherently gender discrimination. You know, they had that sort of workaround of gender stereotyping that didn't allow that blanket rule. And that's what the EOC was able to do in Macy. And, and that was the question before the court. And I think it's, it's what I like about Bostock, it's, it's the victory of logic, <laughs> of straightforward logic. And, and just to kind of clarify what you said, so when, with Baldwin and Macy, the EEOC then kind of officially had it, its position and the courts were starting to, to give essentially some deference. I'm not sure if that's the correct word. You're the professor. You can kind of correct <laughs> me on that. But, but really saying, hey, wait a second. Let's take a closer look at the EEOC's position. Yeah, and you're right. It's not deference. What it is is a solid legal analysis <laughs> that the, a judge seeing this, instead of just relying on this mantra of, oh, sexual orientation isn't covered because look, we have a bill from Congress trying to add it. They now had a solid legal analysis that said, look, you can't take the fact that a bill has been introduced as a reason not to read the words as they currently exist. You know, and for all the people who would say, oh, EOC is expanding the law and, you know, overstepping its bounds. I always would say, no, uh, excuse me, EOC is correcting the mistake that it itself made when Title VII was passed. It was the EOC that first said gender identity is uncovered, sexual orientation is uncovered. You know, that that was excluding. That was, as Justice Gorsuch said, you know, it's like this donut hole <laughs> that was taken out. All we were doing was, from the EOC's perspective, is making the donut hole, making the statute whole. And so once EOC said that, district court judges and then appellate court judges could say, huh, well, you know what, that's right. And as you say, it's simple logic, but you know, it, I, always, I often say cultural logic had to change before legal logic could catch up. And in 1964, 1965, they couldn't imagine sex discrimination, including this, you know, by 2012 and 2015 by the EOC, it, were ready to correct the legal mistake, and then other judges were willing to see that. So I think that brings me to a really key question. Um, so obviously, at the core of a court's holding is that sex orientation and gender identity is discrimination based on sex. But like you said, at the time Title VII was passed in 1964, it's likely that Congress wasn't even considering that. So can, can you break down a little bit for me about how the court got to where it is and how how we consider the passage of time and why that is not an issue. The fact that Congress wasn't meaning to cover people who are LGBTQ. Yeah, well, the reason why is that Congress writes words in a statute and that's what prevails. I mean, even if you're not a pure textualist and you don't look at anything else, right, in a statute, you always start with the words of the statute, then you can see if the legislative history tells you that those words should not have their plain meaning. But you always start with plain meaning. And that's why when Justice Scalia wrote the opinion in Ancal, 
unanimous opinion, male person, male employee being harassed by other male employees. So same sex sexual harassment, right? Justice Scalia for the court said, well, we're sure Congress was not thinking about that when they passed the 1964 Civil Rights Act, but we've held that sexual harassment is a form of sex discrimination. And there's nothing that excludes it if it's male on male harassment. You know, and he said very clearly, it's the words of the statute that prevail, even if the intent hadn't been to include that, because of course the power always remains with the legislature, with Congress. If a court interprets the words in a way they don't think is correct, they can come back and amend the statute, which is what Congress has done many times, actually, in Title VII, when it didn't agree with something the Supreme Court said. So um, why, why is discrimination based on sex orientation and gender identity discrimination based on sex? We put forth three theories in Baldwin. The EOC put forth three theories in the appellate courts. Um, different judges used each of those theories. Supreme Court, Justice Gorsuch just took one, which is my favorite one. <laughs> That's partly why Baldwin starts with that one, which is this very simple, but for my sex, I would not have been discriminated against by the employer. And what I mean is, is if I have a picture of my wife, Nancy, on the desk and I get fired and my colleague, Sam, has a picture of his wife, Nancy, on the desk and he doesn't, what is the difference between Sam and me? The only difference is our sex, right? And it's very individualized. Sure, if if uh, my colleague Frank had a picture of his husband Fred on the desk, yeah, he would be fired also. But that doesn't help. That doesn't undo the fact that I am being treated differently solely because of my sex. Just like Fred is going to be being treated differently than his sex if his, you know, colleague a woman had a picture of her male husband. So that's the first theory. You know, it's like, that's it. That's what the words say. Then the other two theories are the gender stereotyping theory that you can't discriminate against someone based on a stereotype. This is a podcast, right? But if you saw me on a video, you wouldn't say, oh my God, she must be a lesbian. You know, I just, I, my gender presentation is not inconsistent, right? With the general norm for how women present. But of course I violate the most basic gender stereotype of who I should be sexually attracted to. So that's another theory. And the third theory is the association theory. It's been clear in the courts, if I'm a white woman and I'm married to a black man and that's why I'm fired, you know, and a black woman who's married to a black man isn't, you know, just substitute sex for race. And it's clearly that's discrimination based on sex. And it's been always clear that's discrimination based on race in those association claims. So. Those are the three theories, but as I said, it's the first one that the Supreme Court adopted. And I think very interestingly, no other justice felt the need to write any concurrence to say, oh, and also in these other theories, because they didn't need to. So I, I think what's really interesting about that is in affirming that sexual orientation, gender identity is discrimination based on sex, what Gorsuch also reaffirmed uh, was an analysis that's really important for all Title VII cases. And I think it, it's a couple of key factors, namely one, that, that Title VII focuses on discrimination based on the individual, each individual act. An employer can't avoid liability by saying, I discriminate against every man and woman who is gay. Rather, it, it, it's about whether 
you know, Susan, who has a picture of her wife, if she is fired, the court has to look at how, what was the intent behind her firing, which brings us to the second key point. First one was Title VII's individual. Second is um, something is illegal when sex or any other prohibited factors, a but-for factor. And what Gorsuch clarified was but-for factor means all you have to do, so if you look at one, one thing at a time, and if one reason is sex, then it's a violation of the law. So because gay sexual orientation, gender identity necessarily says I'm a woman who likes another woman, as soon as you say I'm, you're starting with a woman, you have to be a woman to fall into that category, there's sex discrimination. I thought that's great. And I think it's, it's going to be a question as to how this kind of simplified discussion of causation plays out in other cases. Um, were, were you surprised about the kind of role the causation standard ended up playing in the decision? Well, Gorsuch had to deal with that because to the extent there were dissents below, that's what they zeroed in on. No, no, no. You're not firing that lesbian because she's a woman. You're firing her because she's a woman and a lesbian. And really, it's the and a lesbian that somehow takes it out of Title VII. Um, and I know when you and I had talked before and you had said how you thought the Yankees fan analogy was so clear, and that was, you know, Gorsuch says, okay, if a guy wears a Yankees sports cap and he doesn't get fired and a woman wears one and she does, it doesn't help that it's also because she wore that Yankees cap because she's being treated differently because she's a woman. So I, I think the but for just helps with all of the whole sex plus case law, which drove so many of us crazy. I think this really clarifies, you know, if you just change one thing, which is the person's sex, even if you don't change something else you don't like about that person, that will be sex discrimination. Correct. So it wouldn't be sex discrimination if you fired everyone who hated the Yankees. That's just that's just your taste in, in, in baseball. Yes. But as soon as you fire, you know, women who hate the Yankees or women who like other women, there you go. What I found surprising in a, in a pleasant way was, was Gorsuch's uh, clarity. I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. I was like, this is great. This is so simple and so basic. What surprised you the most about the opinion? So I wasn't surprised as much as delighted, very much as you said, because Justice Gorsuch is a true textualist. So that came through. He wrote in such a compelling manner. And in fact, one of the things I loved the most was when he said, look, the dissent thinks that, you know, we pulled an elephant out of a mouse hole. Yeah, it's certainly an elephant. That's a big deal. Title VII is not a mouse hole. Title VII says you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. You cannot take sex into account. That's not a mouse hole. People might have not noticed the elephant before, but <laughs> it's now in front of us. As of the Supreme Court, I have a job as a justice to interpret the statute. Here's what it says. And if Congress doesn't like it, they can change it. You know, we're not making policy here at the Supreme Court. We're interpreting the words that the Congress enacted in a statute. And we would be abdicating our job as justices to interpret the plain words of a statute if we hid behind the guise of saying we don't make policy. I wasn't surprised. I was delighted. And I think, I think that's a great way of putting it. 
Um, now, there are a few things that the opinion didn't address, uh, mostly because the issue was so narrow. So as to what the decision left open, at the end of the decision, uh, Gorsuch highlighted that what the decision did not resolve was how Bostock would apply in light of Title VII's religious exemption, meaning if some if there was a religious employer who had, for example, a problem with having someone gay working in a church school. Do you have any predictions on kind of where the, the trends will be and whether we will be seeing a lot of litigation on this issue? I think claims asking for religious exemptions from laws prohibiting discrimination on LGBTQ status will be the main battleground for the community in the coming years. I think we're going to see battles on what you just mentioned, the religious exemption within Title VII itself and how broad that exemption is for religious organizations. I think we're going to be seeing it in terms of constitutional challenges. Individual people with religious beliefs, not organizations, and they will say applying Title VII to me in this way is unconstitutional because of uh, burdening uh, my religious uh, beliefs. And we'll just have to see. Um, and the cases will come up in different contexts. Sometimes it's going to be where there is government money involved, as is the case pending before the Supreme Court right now. That could end up with one result. In others, it'll just be individual people. This will be the next battleground. And that's just the reality. Not to plug the federal sector again, the religious accommodation issue has already come up a few times in the federal sector. And there are some there's a, at least one or two LFO cases that say there it's an undue burden on, on, this was an IRS case, the IRS to have to accommodate someone who tried for a religious basis that I don't want to have to be in an employee group with a transgender person. Um, so the commission, well, that was kind of an undue, that wasn't an accommodation that the agency had to grant. So I, I do think the constitution will be, it'll be interesting to see how people make a constitutional argument. On the bright side, post-Bostock, I just want to kind of wrap up with what we have been seeing since Bostock came out under other statutes. I think the, the first and most almost instant what you saw in the courts was um, Title IX. So Title IX, which applies to the education world, the world of education, pardon me, adopts an analysis when it comes to, to sex discrimination and standards that's similar to Title VII. It draws right from Title VII. So right off the bat in August and September, you had Adams in the 11th Circuit and Grimm out of the 4th Circuit, both saying that a school couldn't discriminate on against these transgender students. Um, part of it was allowing the transgender students to use the bathroom of their choice. But another part of it was, was simply the 4th Circuit allowing the transgender student to change their name. And that the, the circuits both held that the school's refusal to, to do so was discrimination. And they, they apply the same reasoning in Bostock. Uh, the Affordable Care Act, which I, I did not quite realize, it, Affordable Care Act incorporates Title IX standards for non-discrimination. Uh, so there's currently going through the courts right now, um, D.C. to New York, litigation over HHS rule that excluded gender identity from Affordable Care Act. It brings up I think what you had said was part of the importance of Bostock. It's not just necessarily, well, employment is so fundamental. It's Bostock does, it erases this whole patchwork across, whether it's healthcare, education, aspects of 
you know, employers, institutions using sexual orientation as a basis to treat people differently. And I think what Bostock provides is really a solid foundation to protect against that across so many fields. Thank you for your for your uh, contributions to that. Well, you know what? There are so many people actually over the years involved in this. And maybe the DC Bar can add a link to a, um, a post I wrote that basically thanked people through the years, which is also a nice little ride through history. Um, it was just a piece. It started as a short post from my Facebook, and then uh, <laughs> it got longer, so I posted it on Medium. But there are a lot of people, but I'm glad I was at the right place at the right time to, to help rejuvenate this and take it over the line. And um, thank you for walking through that journey with me today on this podcast. Uh, we greatly appreciate your time. And also thank you very much to the DC Bars Labor and Employment Law Community that helped organize this podcast today. Thank you to today's sponsor, GNGF. Our listeners can head over to 4.gngf.com brief for a free digital copy of their best-selling book, Online Law Practice Strategies, How to Turn Clicks into Clients. Get your copy of the book now at number 4.gngf.com brief.